0: Well, we are here to worship, and we worship because the light has stepped out into the world and has opened our eyes, and because of this, we see. We gather together and worship because of the events that happened 2,000 years ago, events that were full of shock and surprise and an emotional roller coaster unlike the world had ever witnessed before. Think about the events that happened in and around the cross. That somber Passover meal that Jesus reconfigured, what we just participated in, in his last supper. We think about the heart-wrenching prayers of Jesus there in the garden. We think about the betrayal by one of his own. The trial, the mockery, the disowning by someone in his inner circle the false witnesses, the abuse, the beatings, the floggings, the crown of thorns, and then the death of Jesus on the cross, the Messiah. And you think about what the disciples must have experienced that weekend, that Friday, and the terrible, terrible suffering they must have endured. The disappointment. I mean, they were with Jesus for three years. They witnessed these great miracles. They saw Him feed the 5,000. They saw Him calm the waters. They witnessed Him walking on the water. They were there for the healings and for the exorcisms. They were here for the great teachings, the parables of Jesus, the the Sermon on the Mount, the words that Steve just read for us, the Beatitudes. They were there on the mountain to witness all of this. And then it all comes crashing down whenever Jesus hangs on a cross in anguish and in humiliation. But here we are, gathered 2,000 years from these events. We sit here worshiping and singing praises to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We sing praises to this Jewish son of a carpenter. And why do we do this? Because the tomb was empty. The women gathered early in the morning to go to the tomb to take care of the body of Jesus because they couldn't do it on the Sabbath day. And they discovered something that turned the world upside down. It was a, an event, a story so powerful that not even the Roman Empire and all of its glory and all of its power and might could not stand up against the spreading of this news of the empty tomb. The light has penetrated the darkness. The Lord has risen. But, of course, the story doesn't end with the empty tomb. In fact, the empty tomb is the beginning. It is the beginning for us as the people of God here at Brentwood Oaks. We are people of the cross. We are people of the empty tomb. And even the disciples, the 11 disciples there on that, that mountain in Galilee at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the empty tomb was the beginning for them. It was the launching of a mission, an incredible mission, a mission that we're going to read about now, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Our sermon text this morning will be the last words of Jesus to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. Let's hear the Word of God. And of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May God bless the reading of His Word. I want to invite our children to pay special attention to this story. It may be a story you know, it may be a story you don't know. And it comes from the Chronicles of Narnia. Now for those who are not familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, these are seven fantasy books written by the great theologian from the 20th century, C.S. Lewis. He wrote these books in the 1950s, and they have blessed the church, they have blessed many households for generations. And essentially these books are a colorful and playful retelling of the gospel, but but set in a magical land, a land called Narnia. And there are children from our world who are pulled into this magical world, and they encounter good, and they encounter evil. And the Christ figure is portrayed in the image of a lion, which is taken from one of the names of Jesus, the Lion of Judah. In Narnia, he is the Lion Aslan. He is good to the core, but he's not safe, as one character describes him. But alongside Aslan, the most memorable character is the youngest of four children, a little girl named Lucy, Lucy Pevensey. She is, I think for C.S. Lewis, the epitome of a disciple. She is able to see with the eyes of faith in ways that others cannot. One story I want to share comes from the third book called The Voyage of the Dawn Trader*. Lucy and her brother and a cousin join up with a group of Narnians on this voyage and they sail to the edge of the world, the edge of that magical world Narnia. And they have a quest. Their quest is to rescue seven lords who have disappeared. But there's one story in particular that I think is important to share, especially on a day like this, and it's it comes in a chapter called The Island of Voices. And this crew lands on this island, a very small island, an island that is mysterious. And in the middle of this island, there is this huge house, a mansion, if you will. And they go to investigate this house. And as they go, they hear a thumping noise. And the noise gets louder and louder. It sounds like thunder And as it turns out, this thumping noise is a group of warriors who had been turned invisible. And they had been turned invisible by a magician. An evil magician who himself was invisible and somewhere on that island. And these invisible warriors surround Lucy and the crew and they give them an ultimatum. Either you send Lucy to the house to reverse the curse, something that they couldn't do themselves... Or these warriors would kill them. It's a pretty easy choice. Lucy agrees. And her mission is to go to that house, to the second story, into a room, and find a special book that has a spell she can read that will reverse the curse. It's a spell to turn the hidden things visible. The only problem is there's an evil magician lurking in the house. So early the next morning she says her goodbyes. And she says her goodbyes because she believes that she is going to her death. And so she begins that long walk up the stairs to the second floor of this house in the middle of the island. And she begins to walk down a corridor that seems longer every step she takes. And at every creak and every little sound, she turns her head to see if the magician was there to do her harm. She finally makes it to the last room. It's a library. And in the middle of this library, there is a large book. And as she walks in, she does what I think all of us would do. She tries to slam the door behind her, but the door won't budge. It is stuck there. And so she's going to have to go to the middle of this room and read this book with her back facing an open door with an invisible magician lurking around. And of course, her heart sinks. She is full of fear. She is frozen in her tracks. She's trying to muster up the courage to take one more step. But this mission is beyond her. And she cowers. I think C.S. Lewis is truly capturing a common plight for many of us whenever we face a task that is beyond us, and really that's a question for us to think through this morning. Has there ever been a situation, has there ever been a task or a mission that has truly been beyond you? Have you ever faced a crisis where you had a hard time even moving, even taking one step and putting one foot in front of the other? Have you ever been frozen in fear? I don't think these feelings will be lost on the disciples here in the mountain whenever they're hearing this mission that Jesus gives them, this mission called the Great Commission, this mission to go out into a pagan world and to make disciples, to make students, if you will, of of all nations in the name of Jesus Yes, this tiny ragtag group of fishermen and tax collectors and zealots are given the mission to go and conquer the world. A world that did not want to be conquered. And let's face it, the disciples knew who they were. They had no delusions as to who they were as men, these 11 men. Jesus had a nickname for these men throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He called them little faiths. Every time you see that phrase, oh, he is little faith, that's really a nickname. He calls them the little faiths. And what do we know about the little faiths? These are the ones who panicked. These are the ones who panicked. When they saw the waves coming up and crashing against the boat, they panicked. When they saw Jesus walking on water, they shrunk down in fear. Peter went out, but he began to sink. These are the ones who doubted that Jesus could feed the 5,000 there in the wilderness. These are the ones who couldn't stay awake with Jesus on his last night when he asked them, stay awake with me. They fell asleep. These are the ones in Jesus' most desperate hour when he needed a friend When he needed someone to stand by him in his trial and there at the cross. These are the ones who abandoned him. These are the little faiths. And yet these are the ones that Jesus commissions to go out to all nations and make disciples. To carry this unbelievable story. They're to go out and to proclaim to the nations that the risen Lord, a Jewish Messiah, is Lord of the whole world. They're given the commission to go into the heart of the Roman Empire, an empire that does not acknowledge the existence of God. And this is a message that is going to stir up much trouble. When you start talking about the Roman gods not being real, that's not going to be a popular message. In fact, that's what Christians were called the first few centuries. They were called atheists because they did not acknowledge the Roman gods. These are the ones who carried this incredible confession Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord. This is a costly confession to make. This mission is beyond them, this mission will cause there to be blood. And no doubt about it, these disciples would have a hard time mustering up the courage to even take one step off of that mountain, given what Jesus is asking them to do. And yet, this commissioning is not just for them. This mission is for the church, It's for the church of any age, in any location. It is our mission today, here at Brentwood Oaks, here in Austin, Texas, in 2019. And we pay tribute to that in one of our four statements. Bringing people to faith is what we're about here. Making disciples of all nations, it is our task, and it is just as daunting as it was 2,000 years ago. We have our own set of challenges here in Austin. We proclaim the truth of the resurrection in a city of a thousand truths. We proclaim the truth of the resurrection in a world that is governed by your truth is your truth. And my truth is my truth. And here we carry this exclusive message of the Lordship of Jesus. That's not going to be popular. We live in a world that shuns the transcendent. To call upon our neighbors and our co workers and our friends and our family to live under the Lordship of Jesus is, well, it's folly to so many. We live in a world of many gods who are in competition with the gospel. The gods of politics and power and entertainment and sports and leisure and sex. All of these gods we find plentiful here in Austin, Texas. We live in a world of distraction and technological explosion. We live in a world where the good news of Jesus is looked upon as antiquated and superstitious and anti-intellectual and anti-science, all of which could not be further from the truth and yet... Perception is reality for a world that sees what the world wants to see. We have a mission to the nations, a mission that is truly beyond us, a mission that is costly if we really take it seriously. It's a mission that we, when we really think about what Jesus is asking us to do, maybe we too are having a hard time mustering up the courage to take one step off of that mountain. Maybe we're having a hard time even taking a step toward our neighbor. And yet, here at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we find a word of grace that really is a message for the church and certainly it had to lift the spirits of the disciples so many years ago when they're, they're sitting there on the mountain processing what it is Jesus had just told them, this mission that they had been given. And it begins with the word from Jesus about His authority. He announces to them, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So if you're in the habit of underlining things in your Bible, you might want to underline the word all every time you see it in verses 16 through 20. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And who's to argue with him? He's a dead man walking. He's conquered death. Surely his power is from another world. And so the disciples are sent out in a mission and they carry the name of Christ. And they carry the one who has authority over those things that are visible and invisible I think that's why Peter in Acts chapter 4 can confront that council, and the council was telling him, quit talking about this risen Lord. And Peter says, you judge for yourself. Am I to listen to you or to God? I can't help but speak about what I have seen and what I have heard. In other words, we answer to a higher authority. But it's that last word of grace I want to close with this morning. The last line in this passage, it's a word of grace that's been unfolding since the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, and it comes in the last words of Jesus. Let's breathe these words in for a moment. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you always. Yes, the story that began with the birth of Emmanuel, the name given to Jesus, God with us, has now come to fruition in the risen Lord. Jesus himself will be with his disciples. He will be with the church in this mission. Jesus, the risen Lord, is with him. Emmanuel, it's not just a name. Because of the empty tomb, it is a reality. God is. Is with his people. Which brings us back to Lucy Pevensey. The little girl there in the middle of the library. The little girl frozen in fear, not wanting to carry out this mission before her, but she has to save her friends, her crew. And so she musters up enough courage to start taking a few steps toward that book in the middle of the library with full knowledge that the magician could be there at any moment. She has to complete her mission. And so she goes to the book and she begins to turn the pages and she finally comes to the page with that spell that says, Make Hidden Things Visible. And she takes a deep breath and she reads it. And immediately she hears a noise behind her. The noise of footsteps. And she thinks, this is it. This is the end. And so she turns very slowly around to see who it could be. It's not that evil magician. There was a magician, and he wasn't as evil as he had been made out to be. She saw someone else there whenever the hidden things were made visible. She saw the great lion, Aslan, the highest of the high kings. And she rushed to him in relief and in joy. And she grabbed a hold of his mane and embraced him and said, I'm so glad you've come, surprised. And he looked down at her and he smiled. And he said, I was here the whole time. I was here the whole time. Brothers and sisters, there are times when the mission may seem too big. There are times when we think about what has been given to us and the task that is before us when we realize this is beyond us. There are crises in our lives that come that would cause us to lose all hope and all fear that would leave us frozen in our tracks if we let it there are challenges that would cause us to shrink back but this morning as we celebrate the empty tomb as we read about the risen Lord let us hear these words again words of blessing words of hope Words of truth. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our Lord Jesus is coming. But in a very real sense, our Lord Jesus is here. I wonder what we would see if the hidden things were made visible right now. Let us consider such things this morning. If you'd like to respond to the good news of the risen Lord, crucified and risen, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.